I'm Aaron Lammer. Today on The Books That Changed Us, Hua Xu is a writer and the author of A Floating Chinaman. Welcome, Hua Xu. Great to be here. Tell me, uh, tell me about your uh, pandemic a little before we get going. <laughs> Where are you, and how are you? Uh, I'm I'm okay. Can't really complain too much. Uh, I'm definitely a creature of habit and routine. So, my family and I just sort of adopted a routine that first week, and just kind of carved up our day accordingly. And you know, it's gotten kind of monotonous, but it's sort of kept us sane as well. So mm. there's very, very tightly prescribed times for everything. Is um, reading part of your time or did that not make the cut? You know, weirdly, I've decided, you know, for quite a while, I just didn't really read any new fiction because I just didn't really have time for it. Like I, I teach at a college and so sometimes I would assign a book that sounded interesting, um, but it would be a book that I'd never read. I just kind of wanted to have an excuse to read it. Um, and that didn't go so well most times. Um, for some reason during quarantine, I've just been reading a lot of kind of newish fiction or just tried to catch up on the literary discourse for the past 10 years. So uh, <laughs> I've actually gotten a ton of reading done. Um, so I wonder if you could tell me about a book you read at some point in your life, perhaps as a student, that made you want to become a writer yourself. So I'm in my 40s. I was sort of introduced to the pleasures of reading in the 80s and 90s. And that was just sort of a time, I think, when the idea of having secret knowledge or like a hidden history mm. was really appealing. I was really into music and I just randomly came across this copy of Grail Marcus's Lipstick Traces, which according to the cover is a history of punk rock. And I wasn't, you know, like super into punk or anything, but I just kind of wanted to learn more about this whole culture, like this whole set of ideas. And the book begins with, I don't know, like 50, 60, 70 pages just about, you know, Hugo Ball, Cabaret Voltaire, Dadaism. Like, it's really about these, you know, kind of left field art movements, surrealism, and sort of like how it all coalesced and found form in the Sex Pistols. And so, like, you don't really get any music for, I don't know, maybe like 100 pages. And I found it really frustrating, but I also found it really captivating, just that he could unearth this entire genealogy of ideas that went into something as simple as like a two or three minute pop song. I feel like a lot of things that are inspiring are also just like really dispiriting. Like you think, that's something I wish I could do, but it's also something I could never do. And I think the book kind of did that for me where it just made me want to find my own archive of knowledge or or find my own kind of secret world to apprehend. I think what I realized in hindsight was that um, the reason the book was so important to me wasn't because I then got into all these things he was talking about. It was just that I understood why they were important to him. And I think as a critic, I've just always been drawn to like, just figure out why things are important to certain people, even if I don't like them, even if they're not that good. And that's sort of what the book taught me. Where did it lead you as a writer, particularly like in your first forays into music writing? That's a good question. Um, 
if you don't know the book, it's, I don't know, it's like 500 pages. I could be exaggerating. It's, it's like a massive book and it's got these like really interesting illustrations in the margins. Like it really just led me to make zines. It didn't actually lead me to think that I could ever write anything that definitive or that unified, but I just really liked the structure of it and just the idea of juxtaposing these different things you might be into, you know, like figuring out the relationship between a painting or a sculpture with like the musical imagination. You know, it it sent me deep into the archives of like American history and like counterculture and stuff like that. But I don't think reading it, I thought any of the history was necessarily mine or adjacent to mine. So it was more the structure and the spirit, I think, that really inspired me. Have you uh, revisited any of your zines as an adult? Do they uh, <laughs> are they still in your possession? I guess would be the first question to ask. Yeah, they're definitely um, they were limited run to the extent where like I pretty much probably have all of them still, like every copy in existence. Um, nobody wanted them and nobody read them, so I definitely have them. I don't really revisit them because it's just very uh, I don't know, just embarrassing because yeah, these are just your. 14-year-old heaves into the larger world. But um, I still think about zines a lot and and kind of how limited these windows into the world were um, and how meaningful it was to have that sort of like constraint. Could you tell me about a book that you read that changed you, something you felt like, wow, I'm going to really carry this book with me through the rest of my life? Yeah, I, re- I recently had the privilege of profiling Maxine Hong Kingston for The New Yorker. Um, and she's a writer who was really influential to me when I was reading her in, in college. Again, like sort of drawing on the history of the 90s, I feel like everyone I knew had Toni Morrison's Beloved and Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior. Like these are just the two books that were assigned in in like practically every humanities class I took. And it took me a while to really understand why Kingston was so influential to me. I think very short answer is, you know, as an Asian American, you're not really reading that many Asian American authors. So there's just some kind of baseline significance to seeing someone who's like, you know, similar to your experience writing about that experience. But I've never really gravitated towards things just because they're written, you know, by an Asian American person. I think what really struck me about Kingston was she was writing these books that weren't necessarily just like, this is who I am in this declarative sense. It was more like, what does it mean to try and explain my experience? Like, what are the larger cultural or social forces that contextualize that experience? And she was really troubling that like first person perspective in her books as she was writing in the first person. She had this book uh, that came out in the late 80s called Tripmaster Monkey that a friend of mine gave me in college. And it's this really kind of surreal and weird novel about this like Chinese American hippie who wants to um, throw this impossible and utopian play that collects like everyone he's ever met in life. And the entire novel is just him going around the Bay Area, meeting people, like annoying them because he's this kind of annoying and overbearing person. And yet they all show up at the end and they all sort of stage this like beautiful, impossible, improvisational play together. And there's just something about the way she brought this character to life. Like he's really insufferable and she's very, (laughs) she's really honest about his shortcomings. And yet there's something about how he 
like pulses in the world, like his vision that everyone wants to join into that I just found it to be really beautiful. And it was just a version of the quote unquote Asian American experience that I found really spellbinding. Um, there are all these little moments in it that I think would only make sense to people from within that experience. Like the kind of micro differences between Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans or Northern California and Asian Americans and those from Southern California. I just really love the way it, it toggled between the sort of micro textures of that experience and then this like larger kind of American experience. I'm curious, like when you describe that character and then I think about uh, the real life character who you wrote a book about, a very persistent, <laughs> slightly annoying person with a grandiose vision that no one else can quite see. Right. Um, it seems like there's like a, a thread there. Do you do you feel like <laughs> one led to the other? That's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, it's also funny because like Kingston is really known for writing about like, you know, from the perspective of a woman and sort of like this is like this apex of kind of like feminist writing. And so it's funny that I'm drawn to the man she's writing about. But I think it's because she does it in a way where she just lays all of his insecurities and his delusions of grandeur bare. And maybe I related to that in some way. You know, it was just that he, there's this moment where the main character and his girlfriend have sex. And then she's like sort of looking at him afterwards. And he's like dozed off. And it's both very, like, loving, but, like, a very – he's really pathetic. Um, and there's just something about her ability to kind of look at him and just sort of see what he wants and to understand why he wants it, but also that he can't help but be really kind of neurotic and kind of awful. And, um, and the fact that everyone sees this but, like, suffers through it anyways because there's this kind of – greater mission. There's just something really beautiful about it. Uh, I will say that this is a book that I often try and teach, but my students generally hate it because um, it's a lot of time to spend in a sort of unpleasant person's head. How do you feel when your students are unmoved by something that was uh, important to you? Uh, you know, I just sort of remedy that by rarely teaching things that are that important to me, uh, just to uh. save myself from the pain. But um you know, I think we all have our own, you know, subjective experience of things. And you just have to kind of understand why someone's not engaging with something. I think, you know, it's fine to not like things that other people like. I think you're working on a new book now. So I'm going to leave this open to uh, your future book or, or um, the book of uh, the past. But um, could you tell me about a book that you were thinking a lot about while writing a book uh, yourself. Yeah, I, I'm working on a book right now that's kind of memoir-ish, but um, I can't imagine spending that much time just writing about myself. So it's sort of drawn from personal experience, but it's supposed to be about like these larger things, which I'm sure is what everyone who writes a memoir says. Um, <laughs> and... For a while, I was just trying to find a model for the book because I think I just don't love the first person. And so it was really hard for me to find models for first person writing that, you know, either it's like overly clever about perspective or it's like not self-aware enough to me. But um, there's this book that my wife had from graduate school that she recommended called Landscape for a Good Woman by um, Kay Steedman. 
and it was is really startling. I mean, it's essentially a really short book where um, Steedman, she's uh, I believe a labor historian, goes back and writes about her mother's life, but through the lens of you know like. Marxist analysis, psychoanalysis, feminist analysis. But you can't really tell that's what's happening. It's just a series of short chapters where she kind of revisits these episodes she remembers from childhood or these moods that her mother would inhabit or um, just sort of brief glimpses of her mother's history growing up in turn-of-the-century Britain. And then she kind of toggles back and forth between this really textured representation of life in England at the turn of the century through sort of the post-war years, and then just sort of reading her attitudes and her politics and her gestures and her posture and her clothing through these larger analytical frameworks. Um, It just really works. It's really um, beautifully written, but it sort of takes someone's life and kind of reads it against history, but it actually doesn't matter who that person is. I mean, I think all memoirs aspire to be commentaries on like the larger social world. And this was a model that I found to be like really amazing. It it did a really good job at that. It kind of reminds me of like um, Vivian Gornick's Fierce Attachments, but with a bit more um, of this like kind of intellectual spine that I find to be really arresting. You said in, I think when in the first question that you're like a person who finds yourself in the archives a lot. As you started to gravitate towards a more memoir-like form, do you find yourself in your own archives? What have you been looking at in trying to, to put this book together? You know, so my book is about, like, friendship and this, like, very good friend I had in college who, who was murdered and kind of my feelings of um, not necessarily, like, responsibility, but there's just some, a lot of, like, projection and and guilt mingled with the grief. Um, And I was always a bit of a pack rat. So, you know, I still had, the moment it happened is when I actually started to write a lot. Like I, or the moment it happened is when I started to take seriously the possibilities of writing. Like I literally just went and bought a journal and started writing stuff down. So I was always pretty fastidious about just like keeping stuff. Maybe it was just like a, relic of collecting sports ephemera and thinking like this will be useful someday. But, um, you know, I just have a lot of stuff from college still. Um, I was making a zine still. So I just have a lot of like kind of paperwork from the stuff that I was working on. But I also just have a lot of our things are our, our like old tapes we would listen to, things like that. So it's been really challenging in a way to go into this personal archive because everything is a bit triggering. And yet I'm very glad that these things exist. It's weird though, because I think because I kept everything, like it's sort of weird to think like, why did I keep all of this? Like I, I figured maybe one day I would write about it, but I look back and I'm like, it's weird that as a 21 year old, I thought like, I really need to keep this sentence I wrote on a napkin at a casino, you know, or, (laughs) or, or, or like, you know, I, I, I sure peeled a lot of labels off beer bottles, you know. And, and so it's interesting to have this, to have worked in like archives. And, you know, I think one of the things you see when you visit like a, an author's archive is like the dreams of theirs that may not have ever been obvious to you, you know, like um, things that they wanted to do, but also just like 
ways in which they imagine their life taking a different shape. Like I remember looking at this, you know, pretty down on his luck detective writer's personal papers, and there were all these brochures for vacation. And I thought like, wow, he just really wanted to like write and live, you know? Um, and so it's strange now to subject myself to that process where, I, you know, I'm essentially writing about a character who's just like a 20-year-old version of me, a, a teenage version of me, and to try and reconstruct using these materials, like the circumference of what I could imagine back then. Wow, thank you so much for this interview. Thanks for having me, Aaron. The Books That Changed Us is made in partnership with Longform and MailChimp Presents. The show is produced by Janelle Pfeiffer, art by Joel Avellino, music by Aaron Lammer. Thanks to Hua Xu for sharing the books that changed him. You can find the whole by the books lineup at MailChimp.com slash presents.